0: John MacArthur's Charismatic Chaos is one of three books that go in a series. John MacArthur's Charismatic Chaos was published in 1992, and it is a second edition from a book that he did in 1978, the year that I was born. This book is followed by... Christianity in Crisis, which was done in 2009. This is by a different author, Hank Hanegraaff. And then the third book in this series is Strange Fire by John MacArthur. All three of these books deal with the charismatic issue in the church today. Strange Fire is 300 pages. Christianity and Crisis is 400, and Charismatic Chaos is 450. So if you follow that, we've got 300, 400, and 415, actually. Uh, these, these books are absolutely essential for someone who has been going to a charismatic church or who is in a, a country or in a society where charismatics are very common. I'm going to summarize all three books, and then we're going to look deeply in this book. Number one, I'll start with Strange Fire. Strange Fire has 12 chapters, and he explains the charismatic movement under these headings. Number one, how to test for a true work of God. How can you tell? Is this a work of God or a work of man? There's four chapters on that subject. Then he moves to specific issues in the charismatic movement. He has a chapter on apostles. Then he has a chapter on prophets. Then he has a chapter on miracles. And then a chapter on tongues. Actually tongues comes before miracles. But those four. And then his closing section of the book, he he deals at length in strange fire on the work of the Holy Spirit. Three chapters so that you will understand what does the Holy Spirit do. And his final chapter in this book is an open letter to reformed charismatics. There are some people who love the five solas like I do, who also believe in speaking in tongues and the miraculous gifts. And in the last chapter, he deals with them brilliantly. And if you know anyone, not very common here, but there are some in the U.S. who believe in speaking in tongues and also love the five solas. You just tell them, just read that one chapter. Then we move on here to Christianity in Crisis by Hank Hanegraaff. Now, Hank Hanegraaff is a little bit different because he is a man who loves the five solas, but is open to speaking in tongues. Ah! But this book, Christianity in Crisis, deals almost exclusively with the prosperity gospel. What is also called the Word Faith Movement. Word faith, or the word movement, or prosperity gospel. He deals with that for 400 pages. And he has lots of quotations. His book is broken up on these lines. Number one, he opens up by explaining what do they teach. And then he has five chapters On critiquing the prosperity movement. The first one is faith. They have the wrong view of faith. The second one is they teach little gods. They teach that we are God and we can tell God what we want. They teach foolish things about the atonement. One of the prosperity teachers, one of the charismatics said, I could have died for the sins of the world. That's Kenneth Copeland. What a wicked, terrible thing to say. And he's very popular. Even here in this town, I have seen his magazines at the doctor's office. Uh, The fourth thing he deals with is wealth, all the money. And then the last thing he deals with is suffering and sickness. So that's this book dealing with the prosperity gospel. And it's written by a man who is open to speaking in tongues and miracles. And yet he comes out and smashes that same movement. But I'd like to spend tonight on this book, the oldest of the three books, Charismatic Chaos. It's longer than Strange Fire. And I think it's better than Strange Fire. And here's why it's better. It's longer and it covers more topics. So let's see them right here. I've given you some thorough notes. As you look on page 30 in your notes, I've reproduced in these notes most of his table of contents. He has a three or is it four? It's a four page maybe table of contents. One, two, three. He has a four page table of contents and there are 13 chapters. Chapter 13 is just his conclusion. But I like to work through these things. And as you have questions tonight, ask questions. It is my goal to do all three of these books in about 45 minutes. Lloyd, do you think I have any chance of doing that? (laughs) If you have questions, though, stop and ask. Let's deal with the issues that are important to you and the ideas and tell the stories. Many of you have stories. Deneo, you've told me stories so many times of unusual things. And tell us. Let us hear some of these things and verses that you found. So let's go through. And we're going to talk about these in a very organized manner. Because his book is very logical. And it begins at exactly the right spot. Where would you start if you had to deal with a charismatic church? Number one. Who wants to read that first question? Nico, Can we know what truth is by experience? Is that a good way to determine if something is true or if something is false? Let's say you go to a church and you feel very excited at the church. Is that feeling a good way to know if it's a good church or a bad church? That's what he's asking here. Is experience a valid test of truth? You see in the notes there, letter A, it all starts with the baptism of the Spirit. And MacArthur is going to explain about a man named Charles Parham in America in 1890. He was a pastor of a little church in Topeka, Kansas. Many good things come from America, and many, many bad things. And here's a bad thing. In about 1890, this pastor of a church, he decided we need more holiness. How can we get more holiness? Well, what he should have done is taken his Bible and studied his Bible. That's what he should have done. But instead, what did he do? He decided that they needed experiences. So he began a Bible college not to teach the Bible verse by verse, but to teach the Bible in a chain of cross-references. So they would give you verses, let's say, about speaking in tongues. You would come here tonight, and they'll give you a verse, verse, verse from different books about speaking in tongues. And you read one verse, and then go to the next verse, and the next verse. What's the problem with that? You might ignore some verses. You might ignore verses, but mostly you'll ignore the context. So you won't read, let's say on that, on that chain, you have verse number three. You won't know about verses one and two and four and five. You'll know verse three. And you've got verse three, and then you run a whole new book. And you go to chapter 14 of that book, and you grab verse number 22. But you don't have chapter one of the book, you just have chapter 14. You don't have chapter two and three and four and five and six and seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. You only have one verse in chapter 14. Then you run to another book, chapter 21, verse seven. So the danger with that is that you won't understand the context. So Charles Parham opened his Bible school that way and he had some students and he told them, I've got to go away to preach, and when I come back, I want you to look through the Bible and tell me what what is it that we're missing? So he went away, and when he came back, the students told him, we're missing the baptism of the Spirit. And so he said, we are going to have a day of prayer for the baptism of the Spirit. So when they met on that day, they started very early in the morning or very late at night, I'm not sure which, but it happened sometime at two, three in the morning. So I don't know if they started at one in the morning or if they started the night before, but sometime early in the morning, two, three-ish in the morning, a woman named Agnes came up to the pastor at this meeting and said, Put your hands on me and pray that I will speak with tongues. 1901, January 1st. That's a rough way to bring in the new year. 10 days earlier, Martin Lloyd-Jones had just been born. They should have listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Instead, they put their hands on this girl and she starts to say, Shabbat, then she tells them, she tells them I was speaking Chinese because they believed that the languages, the tongues, were real languages. They believed there were languages like Shona and Venda and Chinese and Indian. So this girl starts saying. <coughs> And she believes or she says that she's speaking Chinese and the people around her say, that's right. What's the title of the chapter? Is experience a valid test of what? Did they open their Bibles to study? They closed their Bibles and were moving around in their meeting, praying and talking, having people lay their hands on. They were not studying to find the truth. They were doing other things. And they believed, oh, we are speaking in tongues. Why? Because of a verse in the Bible? Because of logic? Because it was careful, rational, logical, thoughtful conclusions? No. Because of their experiences. And that is where the modern charismatic movement began. 1901, January 1st. Wow. Just a few days earlier, Friedrich Nietzsche, the terrible German uh, philosopher died. And just a few days later, Satan brought another bag of tricks. This uh, speaking in tongues begins. But look at the notes there, letter B. This began a movement for two basic approaches to the Christian life. One approach is subjective. And the other approach is objective. Subjective means you focus on yourself. Objective means you focus on something outside of yourself. Now, the Christian faith wants us to focus on... Does it want us to focus on ourself or something outside of ourself? Christ. Christ. Christ is... He's the son of God. Okay? So I need to go outside of my own mind and grab a hold of Christ. And how do I grab a hold of him? I go outside of myself and I read the... Right. Now, it would be wonderful if I would memorize the Bible and bring the Bible right inside myself. But when you first come to the Bible, the Bible's outside of you. Christ is outside of you. We need to have what kind of Christianity? Objective Christianity. That is, Christianity that says, I I don't trust myself. I don't look back at me. I don't say, I feel like this is good. you see that? I feel That I feel needs to be bundled, put in a box, and thrown in the rubbish bin. We don't need that I feel. We need the Christ says. That's objective. But there began this movement for a subjective element within biblical Christianity. And it was built on this word right here. Subsequence. Subsequence. Subsequence is the doctrine that you are baptized by the spirit after you are saved. So there are two experiences. One is to be born again. And the second one is what? Baptized Baptized by the Spirit. So in this view, how many experiences are there? Do you see, this leads perfectly into the false teaching of easy believism that we talked about a few weeks ago. Many people will say they are born again, but they're living in a sinful way and they'll say... I'm not baptized by the Spirit, but I am. Do you see? They divide the doctrines so that they can claim to be Christians even though they are living like the devil. They live like the world, but they claim to be Christians. Why? Because of this doctrine of subsequence. Do you see the word sequence in there? What does sequence mean? One thing. Follows another thing. And the idea here is that being born again comes first. I should have listed it as number one up there. Let me put it right here. Number one. And then number two. The biblical doctrine is that being born again and being baptized by the Spirit are the same thing. The Bible has many ways to refer to being born again. Can you think of some different Bible terms for being born again? Caleb? Um, believing on Christ. Eh, for being born again. Try, try? Calling. Let me write these up here. If you want to put these in your notes, you can. You don't need to, but if you want to, you can. Calling. This word is used throughout the Bible. Calling and being born again are the same thing. Awakening. Awakening. Thank you. Awakening. Being drawn. John 6, 44. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's being born again. In Ephesians 2, 8, he says you must be given faith. Receiving faith or being given faith. That's also a synonym for being born again. What about regeneration? That's found in Titus 3 verse 5. That means being born again. There's another one. New creature. What verse is that in? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. So being born again is something separate from being saved or from being able to Salvation be saved? is the great is the great collection of all of god 's actions for a Christian. Salvation is like a shelf, and being born again is one of the books on that shelf. So Martin Luther was awakened for a long time. Before he was converted. Well, I put it on here to be kind to you. I don't know if this is actually in the Bible. Is there, is there a verse that uses the word awakening to refer to being born again? It, maybe you could say that from John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew 3. I'm not sure. I didn't want to say no because there is a sense in being awakened. But I'm not sure if this is actually in the Bible. But this being baptized by the Spirit goes right here. It's another synonym. Baptized. By the Spirit. All of these are synonyms for being born again. Being born again is one element of salvation. Give me some others. Justification. Redemption. Sanctification. Propitiation. Glorification. All of those are different um, different uh, gifts and works that God does in a person when he saves them. One of many things God does is he causes us to be born again. And here's all the different words that the Bible uses to refer to being born again. But because, what did they do? Remember how were they were studying the Bible? They were going through a chain, but they weren't studying all the verses in their context. So they did not know that John 6, refers to being born again. And they didn't know that calling refers to being born again because they weren't studying the books carefully going right through I want to make sure I know what that word means instead they were grabbing the few verses that refer to being baptized by the spirit pulling them out of the context not looking at verses about being born again and they said oh these two things must be different because the names are different question are these two different people Lloyd, Baba Alex. Two people are the same person. Okay. Mr. Nyalungu, Papanyiko, Alpheus, Mufundis. The same person? It's the same guy. So what we need to do is not be confused by names, but drill down to find out the meaning. These people didn't do that. They weren't interested In objective faith. Let me find out the truth. They were interested in their personal experience. I want to feel good. I want to have this feeling. And notice by the way. The first person to speak in tongues was male or female? Female. Because women in general. Are more easily deceived. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. Don't be mad. That's what Paul says. In the Bible. One of the reasons women can't be pastors. Is because Eve was deceived, not Adam. That will not win me any popularity awards, but I'm not trying to get an award for being popular. I'm trying to reach outside of me to get the truth of the Bible. So we have this doctrine of subsequence. What is the doctrine of subsequence? That there is a difference between being born again and then later we are So what this lady Agnes thought was, Oh, I was born again long ago back in 1880. But now in 1900. Now I'm going to be baptized by the spirit. Do you see? Long ago, I was born again. But now I want to be baptized. What have they got? How many actions? Two. But the Bible says actually it's one. If you were born again in 1880... Then you were baptized in the spirit in 1880. Now, perhaps you haven't been baptized physically, but remember, we're not going to be tricked by names. Being baptized in water and being baptized by the spirit, Azufani. Okay, so we move on in MacArthur's excellent book and go to chapter two. Does God still give revelation? Oh, this is an excellent chapter. MacArthur does it just right. Chapter number one, don't judge a prophet by how he makes you feel. Most people judge a prophet or a pastor or a church by whether or not the pastor is funny, whether he's handsome, whether he says things that make us feel good. And so he deals, first of all, is that a good way to test? His answer is no. You judge by the Bible. Question number two is related. Okay, is God still giving revelation? Now, in this, let me just, let me just uh, read to you a section from this book, The Strange Fire. Um, this, is a, this is a man who has a PhD He's going to write this. Suppose you have the message, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And you remove the vowels. So you have, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Okay? So you've got the praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And you take out the vowels, and now, he's writing this. I, I can't believe the man puts this in print. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. This may seem a bit strange. A bit? (laughs) Not a bit. This is crazy. Let's keep going. But when we remember that Hebrew is written without most vowels, we can imagine. We can imagine how we could become very smooth. Now, remove the spaces and begin with the first letter. Mix up the the letters until they are completely out of order. And the result is P-T-R-R-M-N-S-V-V-R-H-D-R-H-H-H-F-S-C-R. Now add an A after each consonant and break it up into arbitrary bits. patara ramma nasavara daharra dafararra salafa You're laughing and this man published this and he has a PhD in a very influential school in America and this man believes in the five solas and has been to South Africa to preach. This is rubbish. He goes on, I think that is indistinguishable from modern tongues. I agree, I agree, it's rubbish, and that's what modern tongues is. Now listen, he keeps going. Certainly it is very similar to some I have heard. The important point is that there is a message if you only know the code. (laughs) He is defending that. Praise the Lord for his mercy and yours. Take out the vowels. Mix up the letters. Then put in an A. And that really is an intelligent sentence. The, the, the man put that in print. He should be ashamed of this. It appears then that tongues. May actually have a message. Just like a computer program. Even though no one speaks the language of a computer program. That is ridiculous. What he's saying is. We don't need our rational. He's trying to defend that rationally. There's nothing rational to that. Imagine someone saying, take your Bible, take out all the I, E, O, U, mix up all the letters, and then add in the A's again, and here's your Bible. You will have nothing. It is absolutely insane. It's childish. I can't believe that ever got printed by a man who, outside of that ridiculous line, is actually a good man who has written some good books. That particular book, I... Wait, was that John MacArthur? John MacArthur never wrote that. John MacArthur recorded that. And he hid the man's name in the footnotes in the back. But I know his name. I'm not telling you. The point is, section number two is, does God still give revelation? Now, if this man is right, that we can just mix things up and we just be, oh, that came from God. Then what we have, and this is what MacArthur argues in chapter 2. If you can come and speak in tongues, then what you're saying is those tongues came from who? From God. Does God give good things or bad things? Are there any errors or mistakes when God gives a message? There's no errors. What do you call words that cannot have an error? What do you call it? Think, think carefully. Think. Perfect. What would you call words if they cannot have an error? Perfect. Starts with a B. You call it the Bible. So you're with me. Now if you say God is giving the gift of tongues. Shabalala, shabalala. And you say that the shabalala, shabalala came from who? Okay. And you say that it's a gift from God. Then it is a gift that cannot have any. If it cannot have errors. And it's words. What should you do with it? You should go right there. You should take your pen. And write down. Shabalala shabalala. Because as he just told us. You write it down because there's information in there. And someday you'll be able to figure out what Shabalala Shabalala means. So the Bible doesn't stop, according to them, at Revelation chapter 22. It goes on. After Revelation 22, we have what? Shabalala Shabalala. And after Shabalala, we have what? And after we have what? Ziggy, ziggy, ziggy. This is insane. And It's childish charismatics don't usually that i know of write these tongues in the back of their bibles but here's the que- what's the question you should ask why don't you why not why don't you mr charismatic put shabalala Shabbalala in the back of your bible and next sunday when you come to church you say i'd like everyone to turn to the back for our scripture reading for our scripture reading today we're going to read shabalala shabalala why not? Why don't you do that? If it's from God and it cannot have errors, why do In fact, it's a sin if you don't record it. Here is God giving out perfect words and you don't even care. If it really is perfect words from God, you should be with a pen Writing it down, wait, let me write every word, every letter. Wait, did you say shabalala or sabalala? I want to get it exactly like you said, right? They actually don't believe it's from God or they would write it down. And they don't write it down because they know it's a lot of baby talk. And that's what MacArthur deals with in chapter number two. His question is, is God still giving revelation? And his conclusion is, if God is still giving revelation, then you should be writing that down. But what's going to happen? What's the result if God is giving new revelation? What will happen to the church? What will happen to a group of Christians if God is giving new revelation? What will happen to that group of Christians? What will they slowly ignore? The Bible why in the world would you read Jeremiah chapter 27 when you've got a man coming to give you fresh words why do you want the old words and they're so hard and this guy's gonna come and give me fresh words so you will not study your Bible Because in the Bible, you've got to read Greek and Hebrew. You've got to read with your pen. You know how hard it is to read your Bible. It's not hard to sit back and have someone come and say, Praise the Lord for he is good. The the prophecy from the Lord today is this. God wants us to rejoice in him and be glad in him. God is sending blessing and grace. That doesn't take any effort. It does take effort to read Isaiah 52. It doesn't take effort to listen to someone say, God is sending blessing and grace. And what you will see, by the way, whenever you hear these kinds of prophecies, you will either hear absolute, complete blasphemy and foolishness, like like some that we're going to see just now when Kenneth Copeland says that uh, Jesus was a worm in hell, that's absolute blasphemy. You'll hear things like that. Or you will hear general nothings. What are general nothings? Here's my prophecy today. God is full of loving kindness. Full of compassion. He looks on you with love. And today all of his love and goodness is coming to give you blessings. What have I just said? Nothing. 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 No religion in the world will disagree with that. Who's going to disagree with that? God is full of love. He's coming to give you blessings. Who is God? What's his name? What kind of blessings? Who gets the blessings? Do you have to repent? Do you have to pray? Do you have to be humble? Do you have to believe in Christ? Do you have to be united? Nah. It's all general nothings. So you'll either hear general nothings, which aren't worth writing in the Bible, and everyone knows because they don't write it in the Bible, or... You'll have blasphemy, one or the other. But what you will never have is people opening their Bibles, studying their Bibles. You'll never get that. That's chapter two. Do you want to read the book yet? Chapter three, prophets, fanatics, or heretics. We'll go quickly through this one. Um, Just let me read a few quotes from prophets, prophets, fanatics, and heretics. Oh my goodness. What is happening? <clears throat> um, there was a popular group of, quote, prophets called the Kansas City Prophets, very near to where the Charles Parham started his Bible college. And their, their pastor was a guy named Mike Bickle. In 1989, uh, one of this, these guys in his church stood up and said, God said, if I release 100% right now, he means this man is speaking, pretending like God told him. If God says to the man, if I released 100% accurate prophecies right now, the accountability would be awesome. And you'd have so much Ananias and Sapphira going on that the people couldn't grow they'd be too scared it would kill okay what he just said is if the prophets speak 100% truth from god it would kill the people as he said so he goes on he goes on and says this is what god told me so i figure if i hit Two out of three, I'm doing pretty good. What he means is, if I give three prophecies and one of them is wrong, I'm okay with that. Deuteronomy 18 verse 20. If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, this is how you will know that he is a prophet from the Lord. If the thing does not happen... Then he is a false prophet. I'm just quoting from Deuteronomy 18 verse 20. If the thing does not happen. He is a false prophet. You will not be afraid of him. But you will stone him with stones. So if the prophet misses it how many times? Once. You stone him with stones because he's a liar. This guy. I can miss 33 times out of 100. I've only got to get 66 right. You couldn't even pass at the school I grew up You had to get a 70 just to pass in grammar school in the school I grew up in. This guy, you I'm a servant of God. I can get a 66 and he's happy with that. Yeah. And so, so this man, this, this guy says, now, now, the two-thirds, you know, when I first heard that, I said, Two thirds, 66%. So then he said to me, well, that's better than it's ever been up to now, you know. That's the highest level it's ever been. So he's admitting all the charismatics up to this point have even been worse than 66%. So all of the charismatics should have died. But I don't know how they made it, but okay, they made it. So now we've got 66%. Charismatics have a teaching on prophecy that there's two kinds of prophet. They say there's a prophet that always speaks the truth and that's an Old Testament prophet. And then they say there's a New Testament prophet who sometimes speaks the truth. So honestly what they say. Did you see it? Two thirds of the time. You You can get two out of three right. Imagine if you know with a gun. You, sh- you put the gun to your head and pull the trigger. Well, there's, there's only 33% chance it'll kill me. Who's going to do? So the charismatics argue this way, and Wayne Grudem argues this way. And brother, what I like to think is when I see a guy like Wayne Grudem, who has done so many good things and written so many good books, when I see him argue that, I say, oh God, protect me. Because that's a good man doing good things, writing good books, who holds to this view that Old Testament prophets had to speak the truth completely, New Testament prophets, eh, some days are good, some days are bad. If the words are coming from God, why is there ever a mistake? Well, you know the answer, because the words aren't coming from God, it's entirely Subjective. It's not what? It's not objective. They're not going out of themselves to grab the Bible. They're looking in. How do I feel? Oh, I really feel. I have this I have this feeling like something's in me. Something's speaking to me. It must be God. But they can't test that feeling. How do you test your feelings? You need to go out of you to the Bible. But this new view of prophets is, no, no, you don't need the out. No, no just, just. Inside, look inside of you. Don't you think Judas looked inside of himself and he thought, I I feel pretty good about this. I feel good about following Jesus. Three years in, I don't feel good about following Jesus. Was was Judas following a, a dependable guide when he chose to follow his feelings and sell Jesus Christ? So why would prophets today think that they are following a dependable guide when they look inside themselves, not to the Bible, to say, well, I just feel like like this word is coming from God. If a man opens his mouth and says, this is what God says, the very next words must be exactly from the Bible or else he's making it up. That's chapter three. Chapter four, how should we interpret the Bible? He gives us three errors to avoid, and then he gives us five principles for Bible interpretation. Here they are in your notes. Let's just read those. Uh, Lloyd, number one. Literal. Literal. Just take the words for what they say. Vanessa? Historical. Historical. Look at the history. What was happening? Who was David? When did he live? What was he doing? Danielle. Grammatical, follow the grammar. What's the subject? What's the verb? You say, I don't even know what those words mean. That's why pastors need to study carefully. Synthesis. That means you compare scripture with scripture. Practical. You see if this will lead to godliness and holiness, or you see if this will lead to sin. Chapter number five Does God do miracles today? Oh, what a great chapter. I'd love to stand this the whole time. Just briefly, just briefly. What are miracles? That's actually a very hard question. What are miracles? Miracles are unusual displays of God's power. And in the Bible, miracles are always given to show that there is a prophet from God who's coming. So, I've shown you this before, but maybe this will be new. Do you remember the three miracle periods? I think I got this first from charismatic chaos. But I've now used it over and over. The three miracle periods. Who's the first one? Moses Moses and Joshua. Who's the second miracle period? Elijah Elijah. Elijah and Joshua. Who's the third miracle period? Jesus. And? Right there. And what's un- what, what do we see about this? Back here is Adam and Eve to Jesus. Well, what is unusual about this? Moses and Joshua come out here after several thousand years. Elijah and Elisha come here after several hundred years. Jesus and the apostles come out here after Hundreds of years. So there's so many people that live and die without ever seeing what? Miracles. When Moses and Joshua are here, it's about 40 years with about 20 or 30 miracles. When Elijah and Elisha are here, it's about 40 years with about 40 miracles. Maybe 30 or so, maybe 40. When Jesus and the apostles are here, it's about 30 years with how many miracles? Many. So here it's about 40 years, about 40 years, and about 30 years. The earth has been around for 6,000 years. And we have how many? 80? 110? A little over 100 years when there's been miracles on the earth. And we have churches today that are built, they build their whole ministry off of, oh, miracles, miracles, miracles. What about all the people here who have, saw no miracles? Most of the prophets who have lived in the entire history of the world never did or saw miracles. Yes, there are a few other miracles, like at Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Okay, there's, there's one out there. And uh, there's, uh, what, what's the other one back here? It's, um, oh, there's another one back in here. But they're not very common. There's one or two. Oh, Samson. Samson, right here at the judges. Samson, you're the strong man. But in general, there are not miracles. Some people think there's miracles on every page. There aren't. There are hundreds of years with no miracles. That is an excellent chapter, uh, chapter 5. And he also explains that miracles are given... To prove that a certain prophet is speaking on behalf of God. That's why we have miracles. That's what they're there for. And then he he compares another thing. Compare the miracles of Jesus' day and the miracles of today. Jesus just walks down a road. He sees beggars. Stand up. They stand up. Does any charismatic pastor just walk down, he's going to checkers, he sees a guy sitting there blind, playing the piano. You know that man up here by checkers? This town has 50 charismatic churches. And half of those people think they can do miracles and they walk by that same guy and they walk right by him to buy their bread. Why don't they stand him up? Because they can't do what's in the Bible. Chapter 6. Chapter six, what is behind the third wave and where is it going? Let's understand the third wave. Charismatic history has three waves. Number one is Pentecostalism. Good job. How did you know that? Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism emphasizes... Subsequence. This is not your notes. If you want to write it down, you can. Can you see that or should I use the black one? Is the black one better? Or should I use this one here? Can you see that nice? <laughs> <laughs> Pentecostalism emphasizes subsequence. What is subsequence? Baptism of the Spirit is separate from? Born, born, again. born again. Right. Pentecostalism says we speak in tongues to prove that we've been baptized. That's pentecostalism 1900. Then 60 years later in 1960 we have the charismatic movement. What is the charismatic movement? If pentecostalism is tongues subsequent. What is the charismatic movement? Now <clears throat> Pentecostal is the name of a church. There are churches that call themselves Pentecostal. They'll even put it on the sign of their church. But in 1960, the speaking in tongues went out of the Pentecostal church and went into the Episcopalian church. Now it's got Pentecostal and it's jumped and it's in how many churches? In 1960, it went out of the Pentecostal and it went into the Episcopalian. Very soon then after getting into the Episcopalian, it went to the Catholic. Very soon after the Catholic, it went where? Methodist, why? Because those are the ones, those churches in America were the ones that didn't use their Bibles more than any other. So the charismatic movement now has speaking in tongues in Pentecostalism, in Pentecostal churches, and Catholic churches, and Methodist churches, and Episcopalian churches, and then Baptist and Presbyterian, and almost all the churches. In this one, the speaking in tongues stayed in one church, one denomination, but in this movement, it went to all the denominations. So what we had was people started getting together who liked to speak in tongues even if they didn't believe the same thing about the Bible. For example, the Pentecostals baptized in water. The Methodists take a cup and put some drops on your forehead. But at 1960, they have the Methodists and the Pentecostals Get together. And then the Catholics. The Catholics don't even believe the five solas. We don't care. Do you speak in tongues? Come. Come. So they put all their, their, their beliefs, their doctrine, they put it at the door. And they came in and shabalala, shabalala, shabalala. And then out, out they go. That's called ecumenism ecumenism so we have first of all the Pentecostal church that's the first wave right here first wave speaking in tongues but if you want to speak in tongues you have to go to their church Pentecostal but 60 years later all these guys said hey hey we're in America in America we're free I want to speak in tongues. I'm not going to your church. I'm going to speak in tongues in my church. So they all start speaking in tongues. And then people say, if we're all speaking in tongues, let's all get together. Let's break down the walls. Let's have a church conference. And I know we don't believe the five solas. And, you know, the Bible has some errors. And, you know, there's no real hell. And, you know, we all believe different things. But, as you know, Moses, so they all get together in 1960, and that's called ecumenism. That is the second wave, 1980, 20 years later. See, we took 9, 1,900 years to get to this. From Jesus to this is 1,900. Then we've got 60 years to get to that, and then only 20 years to get to the third wave. And the fourth wave starts about five years later. Here's the third wave. And the third wave is signs and wonders. It was started by a man named John Wimber, who taught in seminary. And of course, he has a doctorate. Don't trust people just because they have a doctorate. Most people have doctorates. Can't explain even two verses of the Bible. John Wimber, in 1983 I think, right around there, he published a book called Power Evangelism. In this book called Power Evangelism, he taught, you can't really evangelize unless you come with power. People don't want to hear you say, hey, they said people don't want to hear that, What is it? Who's going to? Who cares about that? What? All you bring is a Bible? Bring power. These people need to see power. And so he argued in that book, Power Evangelism, that we will never see people being converted until we come with miracles. So this is called the third wave. The third wave says not only do we speak in tongues, but now. I want to see a big show. Show me people falling on the ground. Show me people getting up from the dead. Show me wheelchairs falling over. Can you see how we got to where we are today? Because after the third wave, I'm just going to keep skipping here in the book. Um, When you skip down to chapter, skip over to page 31. Page 31, number 12. Page 31, number 12. Does God promise health and wealth? Now, MacArthur wrote this book in 92. And this book, these two books come out much later. Strange Fire and Christianity in Crisis. And they really clarify things. And they're very helpful in that regard. Um, These these final two books. So I I would encourage you to... I would encourage you to... Big things. Excuse me just a minute here. Okay. <clears throat> Those two books really explain the fourth wave better. The fourth wave is not called the fourth wave by any books except me. That's the title that I've given to it because we see here the first wave is speaking in tongues the second wave is all the denominations. It goes to all the churches. The third wave adds the miracles. The fourth wave is what I'm, I'm calling the fourth wave. is from about 1990 onward. And that is prosperity. And with prosperity comes... <clears throat> A whole string of false doctrines. You see this there in your notes. Look at number 12, letter A. Uh, letter, I'm sorry. Number 12, letter B. He mentions here the wrong God. Because the prosperity religion, and I'll call it that. I don't call it. Uh, the prosperity religion indicates it's a separate religion from Christianity. They're not Christian brothers who I say, oh, She's a Christian, but she dis- disagrees with me. No, that one's a Muslim, that one's a Buddhist, that one's a Hindu, and that one's a prosperity. That's, it's not a Christian. You might have a Bible, but it's not the same religion, just like Catholic is not the same religion. You've got a different religion. The prosperity religion has, as he puts in the notes here, three points, the wrong God, the wrong Jesus, and the wrong faith. I wrote a thesis on this. Maybe I should publish it someday. I was looking at it again and thought, I need to add to this and publish it because outside of this book, I really don't know of any books that really smack the prosperity gospel. And this book has a few shortcomings, although it is a uh, Christianity in Crisis by Hank Hanegraaff is a good book, but it needs to be a little more direct. Um, But this fourth wave of prosperity, it begins with the teaching that we are all gods, have you ever heard a pastor on TV or in person ever say, you are God because God gave you his image, he created us in his image, and because we are in his image, cattle have cattle and dogs have dogs, but God, when God has a son, what do you call that? You call it a little God. Have you, have you ever heard that kind of teaching? Who's heard it? Put your hand up so I can see. Okay, I have heard it, I've heard pastors teach it, and I asked a pastor in Elam, by the way, a Tsonga guy, in, in Tonga. I asked, "Hey, mi dondisa yini? Oh, ya, yeah, hi dondisa uh, ritra shquembu? Okay, good, good. Uh, Shan mi dondisa uh, shquembelishin songo? Ah, uh, mi wuli yini. Like hehe, he, na he he tumblishu wele he shifani he shifani se shashquembu. So she wula sees he kuba he na shifani se shashquembu and then ha." And I said it in a way that he would not think I'm attacking it. But I, do you, do you teach this? Yes, I do. I teach this, that we are little gods. This is very common. It's on the TV. It's in books. Pastors, if you say it the way I did just now, pastors will commonly say yes. Have you ever asked a pastor that? Have you ever heard pastors say yes, they teach that? Yeah? I've had more than one pastor tell me, oh yes, we teach that. In fact, I had a man, I met with a man one time when I was evangelizing once. He said, he said, oh, my pastor not only teaches that, he teaches that we must love money. I said, we must love money. Yes, if you don't love money, you're sinning. (laughs) So number one, they have the wrong God because they're teaching that God... Is you. That you are God. Number two. They have the wrong Jesus Christ. Because they teach that the Jesus of the Bible doesn't really have all authority in heaven and earth. And as I mentioned earlier. They say insane things. Like a man could have died for sinners. And it didn't need to be the son of God. And terrible things. Many more things like that. They teach that Jesus was born again in the lake of fire. Jesus never went to the lake of fire and Jesus was never born again. He is the eternal son of God. Sinners need to be born again.